All right, it seems that just about every week thus far in this series, we have been confronting some false teaching as it pertains to the person of Christ. So uh, up to this point, we've talked about Christ's deity, his humanity. Last week, we were talking about the atonement. And what we have been lasered in on is not what people think about Jesus not what people might logically conclude about him, the thing that most makes sense about his character, but what we have been just trying to hone in on is what the scriptures reveal about the person of Jesus. And we've made several conclusions, just a quick review of what the Bible describes about the person of Christ. First of all, that he is simultaneously both fully God and fully man. And to deny either of those things is really to deny the Jesus of the scriptures. And all of a sudden, when you deny Jesus' deity, you're in Jehovah's Witness territory and Mormonism. And when you deny his humanity, uh, all of a sudden, what you're teaching sounds a lot like what Islam is teaching these days about God becoming a man. And as a man, he has experienced temptation and suffering and is thus able to be our perfect representative. Uh, As our mediator, he can perfectly represent us because he is one of us. Jesus is a human being to this day, and we talked about how he is the high priest of a new covenant, a new and better covenant in which we are reconciled to God, not on the basis of our good works or animal sacrifices, but on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we looked at how his work on the cross, what we call the atonement, was not simply just a really good example that Jesus gave to us and living out a perfect life and dying. And it wasn't just like, yeah, we should do that too. It wasn't, as we talked about how is illustrated in the Chronicles of Narnia, a ransom to Satan. This isn't a payment that God made to Satan to redeem us. No, we looked at how the atonement as penal substitutionary atonement describes it, says that Jesus bore my penalty on the cross, satisfying the just wrath of God poured out on sin. And I hope that through this, what, six plus weeks now of examining the person of Christ, you have been led to conclude this, that the real Jesus, we might say the Jesus of the Bible, is better than the fabricated Jesus of other religions. Because when you start adding to Christ, all of the sudden, the burden of responsibility is not in Christ's finished work. But all of the sudden, you see that other religions and these cults will add something to you to accomplish your salvation. And we just had to remind ourselves that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. So a minute ago, I said that we've spent considerable time confronting errors regarding the person of Christ. Today is no different. Last week, when I asked you what the, uh, I don't know, the most crucial event in the New Testament was regarding Christianity, I was expecting all of you to say the cross, but instead, many of you called out, actually like a couple of you, called out the resurrection. And that kind of threw me for a loop. And I was like, okay, I was expecting the cross, but here we go. And after studying it today, or this last week, 
I can't help but agree with you. The resurrection has got to be at least tied with number one for most important things that have happened uh, in Christianity and the life of Christ. And yet for as important as this event is, people have even denied the resurrection. They've made these claims about the resurrection that are just not true. And like we've asked in previous weeks, I think it's important to ask here, really, how important is belief in the resurrection? Is this just some peripheral issue that we can disagree with about other Christians and say, you know, you're a little off there, but that's fine, we can still, or or does the resurrection have eternal significance? And then maybe a secondary question, what is at stake then if the resurrection did not happen? We're going to go back to these questions this week and the next. This will be kind of a two-parter. But right now, I want to like examine with you some of these denials of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the significance of why it's important that we believe in it. So one of the things that is unique about this heresy or this false teaching is that while other false teachings seemed to kind of mature with time or develop over a time period, this false teaching about the resurrection was almost instantaneous to the event of it taking place. Uh, Does anyone remember what was the first reason given for why Jesus' body was not in the tomb, why he turned up missing? What did people say had actually happened? Yes, the disciples stole the body. Let's actually turn to Matthew 27. This is called the stolen body theory. Matthew 27 describes it for us. Matthew 27, the story picks up in verse 57 where we read, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Excuse me, I'm in Matthew 26. Matthew 27, 57. Here we are. Okay. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And what I think stood out to me most from reading this passage of scripture through the first time was the disdain for Christ that is evident in this passage of scripture. Look at verse 63. They call him an imposter. 
Verse 64, calling him a fraud, lest that last fraud will be worse than the first. And the reality is that for the religious leaders of Israel, it wasn't enough to just kill Jesus. They remembered what Jesus had said, that he would rise from the dead in three days. They knew. They knew that if his body turned up missing, it was only going to validate what Jesus had said, his message, his mission. They could not afford for that to happen. They cannot chance that Jesus make an impact even in his death. So in their finite wisdom, they devise a plan to just snuff this new religion out before it even has a chance to get off the ground here. And they say, hey, let's go guard the tomb so the disciples can't come and steal the body and circulate this myth. We'll make this tomb as secure as we can. And yet we know that no sealed tomb, no heavy rock, no guard of soldiers could keep Jesus in the tomb. Because on the third day, there was this great earthquake, and the angel of the Lord comes down and when the women come to the tomb to prepare the body with these ointments, the tomb is empty. And what for us, we celebrate every year at Easter, which is a cause of great rejoicing and celebration, was for the Jewish leaders probably the worst thing that could have happened. Because their greatest fears have been realized. Turn one chapter over to Matthew 28. The very same day of the resurrection, as Jesus has just relayed instructions to his disciples to go to Galilee, something else is taking place in verse 11. While they, speaking of the disciples, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And what was initially a, an attempt to keep the disciples from stealing body, to take these preventative measures, is now just all-out deception. The body's turned up missing. Hey, let's propagate this lie that the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. And for a sum of money and the promise of uh, protection under scrutiny from the governor, these Roman soldiers agree to the plan to just you know, propagate this lie that Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. And, and people that I've read, even in preparation for this, have just offered a, a couple of rebuttals to this. I mean, look how serious this lie was. Look how, uh, how many people bought into it. Verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now Matthew here, by saying to this day, is really meaning to the time of his writing of the gospel, maybe 20, 30 years later. People are still believing this. We have external historical records that say even up to, I think 150 years later, people still believe Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. Maybe you've heard someone say that the tomb was empty because Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. This really took hold. But scholars have, biblical scholars, have pointed to just a couple flaws with this logic, this reasoning here. 
they argue that Roman soldiers would have been highly motivated not to have fallen asleep on the job. Uh, we have some, again, external historical evidence from roughly around this time period that says, listen, if a Roman soldier was caught sleeping on the job, the punishment was severe. In fact, death was likely while they were being punished, if not death uh, from injury after the fact, or severe mutilation. Uh, so, so why lie about this? They have nothing to gain. <laughs> I mean, it's very evident that uh, why incriminate themselves and say, hey, we fell asleep? Uh, well, th remember, the religious leaders told them, we'll protect you from the scrutiny of the governor here. But also, as was pointed out to me, pay careful attention to the story that these soldiers uh, are continuing to spread. They say, while they were asleep, the disciples came and took the body. Now, something should not add up in our minds there. While you were asleep, you remember this happening? I, I, I'm hardly conscious when I first wake up in the morning and can't tell you what happened, let alone while I'm asleep. And yet people are believing this. And we have to ask ourselves, why are people trying so hard to cover this up? What's the big deal if Jesus is raised from the dead or not? And the reality is that these theories, these explanations, keep coming. There's the what's called the swoon theory, which goes something like this, that Jesus on the cross suffered such severe injury and mutilation to himself that really he was just unconscious. And they took him down off of the cross, still unconscious, put him in a tomb, still unconscious for three days. You know, maybe after all the spices and the cool air revived him, he woke up and walked out of the tomb, never actually having died, but just kind of, as this theory says, swooned, passed out. And yet one commentator I read said, listen, if this were true, the greater miracle would have been Jesus surviving these injuries and walking out as if nothing had happened. Right? Here's a man who has been beaten to a pulp, hands, feet pierced, spear thrust into his side, uh, just a mess. And three days later, he's able to personally walk out of there, push away the stone himself as if nothing had happened. Uh, the, the Roman guards who were experts in the field of death personally gave like a verbal assent. He's dead. They didn't feel the need to break his legs. They instead put a spear right into his side. And Jesus, throughout all of this, never you know, reacted to that if he had just passed out. No, Jesus was dead. Uh, in Mark, I think, 15, uh, Pilate actually confirms with the centurion before he gives the body to Joseph. He says, uh, he's dead, right? And the centurion's like, yeah, he is. And then he ascends to give the body to Joseph of Arimathea. There's another theory that has become popular probably most recently, and it's called the hallucination theory. This one is particularly deceptive, but it holds to this idea that Peter was in such a grief-induced state that what he saw of the risen Christ was actually just a product of a hallucination. 
and Peter was able to then communicate his grief and what he had seen to the other disciples, and they bought into this and also hallucinated and saw a risen Jesus. And I said this is deceptive because rather than having to deal with the actual evidence, it allows for people, skeptics, to say, well, Peter did see what he saw, right? We're not going to deny that, but we'll write it off as, ah, you're just hallucinating. That was just your personal experience. We'll, we'll agree, you saw something, but it was the product of your grief and your hysteria at, at the death of Christ. Again, some weaknesses with this, exam, or this uh, theory here. The sheer number of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection refutes this. Uh, we're told that 500 people at once saw the resurrected Jesus. Uh, there's me medical evidence that says that uh, hallucinations are very individualized experiences. They don't happen in these mass contexts or settings. It, it is impossible for 500 people to be hallucinating the same thing. Um, uh, granted, people who are severely distressed have been known to hallucinate, so that could have been true of a couple of people, but with how individualized they are, no way is this hallucination theory holding any water. It's just another attempt by secular people to say, listen, Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. This is all the product of people's imagination. There's several other theories here which are equally mind-blowing. There's called the imposter theory, which says that Jesus had a twin brother or a look-alike who just appeared after his death and was walking around pretending to be him. Uh, some people say Mary went to the wrong tomb, and of course the tomb's empty if she looked in the wrong one. Some people say the gardener moved Jesus to another tomb, so when the disciples came, the tomb was empty because the gardener had moved him. Um, some people say it's just a projection of Jesus, not his physical body. Uh, John MacArthur, in one of his sermons, references a whole book dedicated to a theory in which it is explained that the body of Jesus just evaporated into gases after three days. And John's like, come on. How did you get content for a whole book to write about this one thing, that after three days, the body evaporated into gases? Like, that's ridiculous. And it's evident, then, that people are unwilling to admit the obvious, that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, because when it comes to the resurrection, we're left with a simple choice. Believe these theories that we've already demonstrated are on pretty shaky ground, or believe what the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I really want to hone in on a phrase that appears a couple of times in this verse, in accordance with the scriptures. Because this gives credibility to the resurrection, that this is not just a reactionary thing. Oh, God came up with it at the last second. Oh, my son is dead. Uh, slap a Band-Aid on it. Let's raise him from the dead. No, if this is true, then the resurrection has been anticipated from as early as the Old Testament. 
Jesus himself reiterates this as he is in the process of appearing to people after his resurrection. He comes across some of his disciples and says this to them in Luke chapter 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And perhaps you're even sitting there asking yourself, I'm not remembering an Old Testament passage that specifically talks about Jesus rising from the dead. Ah, nothing's coming to mind. How about Psalm 16? Where we read, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Maybe you're still kind of scratching your head trying to make the connection here between the Old Testament and Christ's resurrection. You're like looking, uh, I know Jesus is called the Holy One in Mark. Okay, I could see the connection there. Maybe you're looking at those words like uh, not letting him see corruption or this making known to me the path of life. And you're like trying to piece together how this could be talking about the resurrection. But there's a better way yet to know that this passage of scripture talks about the resurrection. If you remember from my Wednesday night series this last year, talking about Jesus in the Old Testament, what or who is the best commentary on the scriptures? Anyone remember? It's the scriptures themselves. Is there a passage of scripture that could exegete this for us and say, hey, this is talking about Christ? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Perhaps best known for Peter's sermon about Jesus on Pentecost, in which 3,000 people are saved on one day, the church is started here in Acts chapter 2. Peter's in the middle of a sermon in verse 22 where we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of of lawless men. Notice here that Peter is saying that the crucifixion at the very least was part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But how about the resurrection? Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's saying it wasn't possible for Jesus to be contained to the grave, and on what basis can he make that claim? Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness 
with your presence. And if you haven't quite made the connection yet, those last two verses that we read in Acts 2 are the very ones that we see on the screen. Peter's answering the question, on the basis of the scriptures, it was impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave. And I just want to offer a couple of clarifying points here. Perhaps you're noticing that even the differences uh, between what we see on the screen and what we're reading in the text here. Verse 27 says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, but the psalm says you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And, And this is really just a translation choice here, which I think is a little unhelpful, because we usually equate Hades with what? Hell. Yes. And this is not at all teaching that Jesus went to hell, as some people believe, for three days. In fact, I think the clearest evidence for, uh, against that belief, rather, is that Jesus tells the thief on the cross what? Today you'll see me where in what location? Paradise. Yeah, so to, for the translators to make this choice here that where we equate Hades to hell and Jesus is say, you know, that's where my soul is going to be, is a little unhelpful. Other translations, in fact, the majority of them, leave it Sheol, which more generally is not a place of torment or punishment, but really just a place, we might say a holding place for the dead. Secondly, other translations have offered, instead of the word corruption, which is clear, they've offered some clearer words, like uh, you will not let your holy one rot or see decay. And what's being communicated by that, then, I hope it's clear to you now that what both David and Peter are saying is that there is someone whose body is not going to have time to decay or rot. Their soul will not be abandoned in the place of the dead for an extended period of time. And if we're faithful students of the word, we often have to ask ourselves questions. If we have an inclination that Psalm 16 is talking about Jesus, how then do we Uh, read this in the context of David. We're always trying to ask that question. Well, this, David wrote this for a reason. Uh, How could this be true of him? I don't know, trying to wrestle with some of those things like maybe some of you have before in its original context. Where does this verse make sense? Peter, however, looks at this verse and says, it is so clear to me who this is talking about. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter says, we know where David's buried. We know that he died. This passage of scripture is not talking about David. Who's it talking about? Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not set one of his descendants on his, excuse me, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus 
whom you crucified. There's a lot going on in this passage of scripture. The resurrection is significant for a number of reasons, but I do want to make this simple point. One of the reasons that Jesus was resurrected was to fulfill God's promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on a throne forever. It was impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave because God had to keep his word. And in a very real sense, Jesus was raised to rule and to reign as this descendant of David. That's one of the implications of the resurrection, that Jesus reigns. And when we come to the New Testament, this idea of God keeping his word extends to Christ because he makes a number of prophecies about his resurrection as well. For instance, in John chapter 2, after having cleansed the temple, Jesus says this, What's, or excuse me, the Jews say this to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see Jesus himself saying, listen, already it's, I'm going to be in the grave for three days. Matthew 12. People are again talking to Jesus, asking for a sign. And he says, an, an evil, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet that should read Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is again saying, listen, going to be in the grave for three days and three nights. How about a third one? Matthew 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And we've seen three instances now in which Jesus makes a very specific prophecy about how long he'll be in the grave. And maybe the larger point we're trying to make here is that to deny the resurrection that this actually happened is really to call God and Jesus a liar. To deny that this happened is to say, Jesus was lying. The Old Testament scriptures were lying. And admittedly, of the miracles that we have recorded for us in Scripture, the resurrection might be among some of the more difficult ones for us to understand. We've probably not ever seen someone be raised from the grave before. And yet, if we are faithful students of the Word and have seen time and time and time again, God keeps smaller prophecies, more specific ones about, you know, Jesus' clothes being gambled for, Jesus saying he's thirsty on the cross, then when we see God and Jesus both say, in, I will be resurrected, Jesus saying, in three days, I will be resurrected, it should be nothing for us to take scripture at its word and say, it happened. We know God keeps his promises in other regards. He kept it here. I asked a question at the beginning of this. What is at stake? for us if the resurrection didn't happen. Let's pretend for a second that some of these theories are true. 
Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. Someone stole the body, or it's just a hallucination. Is this of any consequence to us? I mean, we talk about Jesus dying for our sins. We know that's important. But the resurrection, does that have any bearing or weight on my faith? I see some of you nodding your heads. It does. Paul answers this question for us. 1 Corinthians 15, if you could turn there. From what we can gather here in 1 Corinthians 15, there was a group of people in the church who were denying that believers would be resurrected from the dead. Perhaps more specifically, they were denying, uh, I should clarify that just a little bit, they weren't denying that Jesus was raised from the dead. They had no problem with that, as far as we can tell. But that believers also would be raised from the dead? They were really struggling with that idea. Paul is going to argue, listen, these two things are connected. It's not one to the exclusion of the other. It's either Jesus and all believers are resurrected or no one was. He's going to argue that very thing in verses 12 and 13. Let's read it. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul says, hey, let me humor you here for a second. If there's no resurrection of the dead, there's no resurrection of Jesus. What are the implications of that? Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Paul says that what I have been preaching and what you have believed is in vain if Christ has not risen from the dead. It is useless. It has no value to you. You have placed your faith in someone who is dead. No different than any other religion who has a dead God that they worship. To take it a step further, Paul actually says that if the dead aren't raised, then he's been misrepresenting or even lying about God raising Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 15. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Raised, And I hope you're seeing how Paul is weaving these two ideas together here. Either believers are resurrected with Christ because he was resurrected or no one was resurrected from the dead. They go hand in hand. You cannot deny one to the exclusion of the other. And Paul now is going to launch in the next three verses into some serious consequences of what would be true if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Verse 17 lists the first consequence for us where we read, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Paul says, listen, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your sins have not been forgiven. 
Romans 4.25 reads this. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, talking about the work of Jesus and linking Jesus' resurrection with what? Our justification. This is very serious. It is the resurrection of Jesus to which is linked our righteous standing before God. And there's a simple point that Paul is trying to make here. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then you have not been declared righteous. Then your sins have not been forgiven. Secondly, verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Paul says this, if Jesus has not been raised, then those who died, fully expecting to be ushered into the presence of God, they place their faith in Christ. When they die, they have the unfortunate reality that instead of life, they've perished. And Paul's final conclusion in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Have you ever looked at people who are trapped in a false religion with pity before? A couple years ago, I had a chance to go to a mosque and I was blown away by the faithfulness of people who observe Islam. They were some of the kindest people. Uh, at one point, me and the group that I was with, we were in uh, maybe their assembly hall and someone had run over to a neighboring gas station and purchased a bunch of cold drinks for us and just distributed them amongst our group. Uh, faithful Muslims who pray, what, five times a day, fast for a whole month, um, who just have all of these religious observances are so faithful. And yet we know that if they die without Christ, what will that religious faithfulness have earned them before God? They'll be condemned. And to look at people like that, who have given their lives to something that cannot save them, should move us to pity. It's just sad that people has that Satan has deceived people like this. And Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, that's you too. You have given your life for something which has no hope, which cannot save you. The resurrection of Jesus is important. I hope that you've seen that. To, to deny it, as some people have, is to deny like the intricate beliefs 
and things that we are clinging to. The second question, is the resurrection of the dead just a periphery issue? Does belief or unbelief in the resurrection have eternal significance? Well, Romans has something to say about that. Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Belief in the resurrection of the dead seems to be an intricate part of our salvation. So we can't just take or leave this doctrine. We can't just say, eh, Jesus' death was important, and yeah, I forget about the resurrection sometimes. No, this is critical that we believe this and are teaching people this. It's at the essence of salvation. So some final thoughts for you this morning. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 15 and you've read through all of these negative implications, if Christ hasn't been da- if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, we're of all people most to be pitied, we've perished, our faith is futile, those are the what-ifs. But since we know that Christ has been raised from the dead, we can restate these things positively. Because Christ has been risen, our sins have been forgiven. Because Christ did rise from the dead, we have hope that one day we too will rise again. Because Christ has been resurrected, we don't just have this life to live for, but the next. So let's live for the next life. We'll look in depth at some more implications of the resurrection next week, which I hope will be an encouragement to you. Um, But really, this morning we were focused on, again, some of these false teachings that have maybe even permeated conversations that you've had with people and just draw them back to the fact that God's word is true. This is a promise of God that is being fulfilled here. The resurrection is critical to what we believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God who keeps your word. We've seen that time and time and time again in the scriptures, and we saw it again here this morning. What you say, you will do. Thank you for giving us hope of a life to come because you have resurrected your son. I pray that we would live for the next life with the breath that you have given us today to proclaim him to a world who is perishing and believing in just false things who who are dead in their own sins and trespasses. Lord, let us give them hope of a risen Christ. And it's in his name we pray.